It's great to hear all those little feet run out, isn't it? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for what today represents. We thank you for, as Elder Hillegas prayed, the bounty that you have blessed us with. Lord, we thank you that we can get the Bible in any language we want to right here in America. That anybody can be reading it anywhere and be ministered to it, ministered by it through your spirit. Lord, I pray that the freedoms that we have will not stifle our growth, will not dwindle our growth, but it will only fuel it. We thank you for your word that it is timeless and true, that it transcends every country and culture and language and society and strikes to the very core of the human experience, and that is our need for a savior and a king. So, Lord, I pray that you bless our time this morning, that you bless the words of my mouth, that I may say only what you want me to say and nothing more, nothing less, that your spirit would go forth and work in our hearts. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing on, of course, in uh, the letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. Back in 2008, when the housing market crashed, a lot of people lost a lot of money. The stock market was hit tremendously hard. Obviously, because our country is the way that it is in this world, when the United States economy was thrown headlong into a, into a recession, what else happened? The other larger nations in the world were hit with a bad economy as well. When the world's financial market went under, as economic experts will tell you, because of financial greed, everything invested in the world's financial market poof, disappeared. It was just gone. We've all heard of, perhaps read, and perhaps have used in conversations with others the phrase, you reap what you sow perhaps a little bit more vindictively than we should be saying that, but we've all used that phrase or heard it or read it somewhere, you reap what you sow. We've used it in all sorts of different situations, referring to all kinds of different scenarios. We're going to discover what this phrase was originally referring to, and I'm thinking it wasn't what we thought it was referring to when we used it. We've had a couple of missionaries bring good messages of how God, what, what God is doing in other nations the past couple of weeks. I know I've been blessed by them. I hope you have been as well. And I hope, I hope that you missed me. But after today, I'm not sure that will still be the case. <laughs> We're going to be talking today about how God wants us to handle our finances. Instantly silent. <laughs> and what kinds of investments we should be making with what he has given to us to righteously handle. 
Lots of pastors and churches try to stay away from talking about money, try to stay away from this area, because it makes everyone feel uncomfortable. That's kind of the point. What, when the Bible tells us to make a change or to see something differently, is supposed to be comfortable? It's supposed to make us feel comfortable. Where in the Bible does God want us to pursue what makes us comfortable? A mark of spiritual immaturity is staying away from what's uncomfortable, whereas a mark of spiritual maturity is listening to the uncomfortable things and being humble enough to take a look at our lives and, and make a change. I looked at the website of a church recently where the pastor said, leave your money at home and just come experience Jesus. And Cheery read on a social media thread recently where the question was posed, what should the church be in this time and culture? One of the answers, which got a rousing number of likes, was no tithing sermons, no agenda, just God. That's what they wanted in a church in this time and culture. Aside from the fact that God already has his own agenda, whether or not we like it, this person thought that any discussion regarding the handling of finances was completely dis disconnected from God. That part of their life should not be connected with God. And that's what a lot of people think. Leave me and my money alone. It's between me and God, right? That's what, that's what a lot of people like to think and say. The second part of that statement is correct. But what we find out from God's word is that we don't have to go on a long spiritual journey to find out what God wants us to do with our finances. He's already told us. The problem is, is that a lot of us just don't want to listen. That's the problem. I want to let you know, though, that I've been there. In the past, I've thought, God knows what I can't do. God knows that I can't do what he wants me to do with the money that I have, so I'm just not going to. I've been there. I've just tossed a buck in the offering plate thinking, God knows. God gets it. Him and I are good. I've been there. I know, I know I've been through that. I know that. But I can also tell you firsthand how much fear and misplaced pride comes with looking at our finances in a human and worldly way. And I can tell you firsthand how much blessing and peace comes with letting go of our pride, letting go of our I can'ts, and making a commitment to handle our finances the way that God wants us to. Now, hopefully you know me well enough over the past year and a half to know that I don't have hidden agendas. I don't have a grandiose scheme of getting rich or building a megachurch. That does not interest me. All I want for us is to honestly and humbly see what God's word says about this topic and honestly and humbly see what still needs to be changed in us and honestly and humbly see what more needs to be let go in our lives and be given over to God's control. The more that we let go and give to God, the more peace we'll have, especially when it comes to our finances. And that's a big thing in our lives, isn't it? 
wouldn't it be great to finally have peace? This is not to guilt anyone. I simply want us all to experience the peace and the blessing that comes with giving over complete control of our finances to God and using our resources the way that God has already laid out for us to use them. So, with all that intro, let's take a look at our passage this morning. The first point that we come to, we have two points this morning. The first point that we come to as we take a look at this passage is the support. And verse 6, this is what we read. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. My honest question is, where did all of this embarrassment of teaching about giving finances come from? Where did, that, all that, where did all that embarrassment come from? It certainly did not come from the Bible. It certainly did not come from Paul or any of his letters. This is the first time we have recorded for us in the chronological writings of the New Testament about Paul talking about a believer's responsibility in financial giving. But as we read through the New Testament, it certainly is not the last, is it? And Paul is not ashamed to talk about giving in our finances. What is Paul talking about here? He's not just generally talking about giving to the poor or giving to good causes. What is he talking about? What he's specifically talking about here is the financial support of those who teach the Word of God in church settings. In the world that Paul was writing, pagan temples would charge a fee for you to enter it. The Jewish people had to pay a temple tax to be part of the spiritual community. That's how those religious institutions kept themselves up. As we see in the Old Testament, those who served in the tabernacle were provided for by way of the tithe, or 10% of Israel's first fruits. God had built into the law a means of financial support for those who served in his house of worship. But in Galatia, if you remember that map that we looked at a long time ago, in Galatia, well outside of the Holy Land, and made up of mainly Greek, Roman, and Gaelic pagan influences, those who had committed their lives full-time to teaching the Jewish and Gentile believers in those Galatian churches the Word of God needed to be financially supported as well. There were systems set in place for Jewish teachers and systems set in place for those who served in Gentile pagan temples. But how were full-time teachers of God's word, including both Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus and church settings, to be financially supported? This was a new thing. There needed to be some instruction with this. That was a fair question. Because Paul had been spending the majority of this letter explaining how the Gentile believers should not be coerced into following every aspect of the Jewish law. So since that's the case, should the tithe commandments found in the Jewish law also be done away with? Or do they continue on? A lot of believers would advocate that, yes, the tithe commandments found in the Old Testament have nothing to do with the New Testament church. They cite the verse that Paul writes that says, Each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, which is what they would say the tithe would be, for God loves a cheerful giver. We've heard that verse many, many times. While this verse holds tremendous meaning for how dear God counts sacrificial giving, believe it or not, it has nothing to do with the financial support of the local church and its teacher. 
If you look at the original context of this, of this verse, if you flip forward to, to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and you looked at the original context of this verse, Paul is trying to convince the Corinthian church to follow through on a previous commitment they had made to financially help out the impoverished Jerusalem church. That's the original context for this verse. For them to follow through on a previous commitment that they had made to financially help out another impoverished church. So that still leaves the question, how did God provide for these new Gentile and Jewish teachers of God's word teaching diverse churches? We have the basic answer here in our passage this morning. The believers, as we take a look at this in Galatians 6.6, 6, the believers that made up the local Galatian churches were the ones financially responsible to support the teachers of those Galatian churches. You can see here in this verse that it was the responsibility of the ones specifically being taught by these local teachers to support those local teachers. It wasn't anyone else's primary responsibility other than the ones reaping the benefit and spiritual reward of that teaching. That was the most fair way for who is reaping the spiritual benefits of having the deeper truths of God's word being revealed to them. The ones being taught, right? The ones sitting under that teaching. And notice when you read verse 6, and you read that, read that along with me again. The one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. When you look at that, is there any other clarification there? Is there a footnote that says, well, I mean, I only mean those who think they can give, those who think they're well off enough to be able to give, those who have enough left over after everything else has been paid, or those who happen to have a $5 bill in their pocket. Is there any other distinction there? No. There is no distinction between anyone who thinks they can afford to give or not. Or anyone who thinks they should give or not. The underlying truth in verse 6 is that if you're receiving the benefit of being taught the deeper truths of God's word, then you should financially support the one who has committed their lives to studying, digging into, and revealing those truths. That's the only clarification that Paul makes here. Now that we know the who, what was the how? How are they supposed to financially support the one teaching them? We get a big clue about that answer in another one of Paul's writings, one he writes later on to a pastor named Timothy. He confirms to Pastor Timothy that the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. The word for honor is derived from the word meaning to fix a value to. If you're having a garage sale and you're selling one of those rotary style phones and you think to yourself, is anybody going to buy this? Maybe somebody for a nostalgic value, maybe a hipster who think will be cool with a rotary phone. And you think to yourself, what can I sell this for? And you put a price on the sticker and you slap it on that rotary phone and you put it on the table. That's, that's, the, that's the meaning going on with this word honor, to fix a value to, to fix a price to. 
And it was often used in connection with the monetary value of something. So while Paul was referring to honor, as in respect and deference, especially to those who preached and taught the word of God, he was also referring, especially in connection with the following verse, to a double monetary value, so to speak. Notice what Paul uses to back up his point, what he had at his disposal. And that was excerpts from what? The Jewish law. That's what he used to back up his point. While in Galatians, he used the law to back up his points about following what's at the heart of the law, because that's what he simply observed in it. Here in 1 Timothy, Paul also used the law to back up his point about financially supporting those preaching and teaching God's word, because that's what he simply observed in it. Beyond this, Paul uses the same reference about not muzzling an ox while he is threshing in his first letter to the Corinthian church. He says, for it is written in the law of Moses. Notice what he says there. For it is written in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now the original context is that when you would thresh wheat, you'd use an ox to do it, but he would get hungry. So don't put something over the ox's mouth so that he can't eat from what he's also working from. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? That's a very interesting question. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake, him and Barnabas' sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Right there, I'll back up a little bit. Notice what it says at the beginning part of that passage. Paul outright refers to the law of Moses, and this is what's huge to see here. That when God originally gave the law to Moses... His ultimate point about that commandment about the oxen, while he cared about the oxen's well-being, was not really to do with them. It was ultimately given to Moses for those who would be preaching and teaching God's word thousands of years later. That's what Paul reveals to us through the Holy Spirit. So now, as some will purport, the Old Testament does not not have anything to do with us as New Testament believers in Jesus. It's that law, it's that the law is fulfilled by Jesus and Jesus' plan. In fact, Paul next outright uses the Old Testament law with its included tithe commands and extends it to the New Testament teachers of God's word. He says further on, do you not know that those who perform sacred services, he's referring to the Levites, eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. Within that reference, he's, what made up that practice was the tithe that was given to those Levites. So also, in other translations, it's, it's translated in the same way or in the same manner. The Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. I don't see a removal of the tithe principle found in the Old Testament, do you, when you read this? And 
Rather, in a way, we see an extension of that principle towards those who preach and teach God's word. Some will claim that this still doesn't continue a command to tithe in the New Testament, but here's the thing. Right here, this would have been the perfect opportunity for Paul to break away from the law in laying the foundation for financial support of those in ministry. Here's why. Before this, Paul makes appeals for this truth by using non-Old Testament appeals. He says, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, Peter? Well, those are not Old Testament references to back up his point. He could have stopped there. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it, or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock. Again, non-Old Testament appeals to back up his point. He could have left it right there. Those aren't found in the Old Testament law. But Paul still uses them to illustrate his point. In fact, he openly admits that, but then does use the Old Testament to back up his point. He says, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? He could have left it with the non-Old Testament law references and appeals, but he didn't. He went further and used the law in his appeal including its tithe principle. For a guy who spent the majority of his ministry telling the Gentiles they did not have to put themselves under the Jewish law in order to be followers of Jesus, this right here would have been the perfect opportunity to also break away from the Old Testament tithe principle. But instead of breaking away from it, he uses it. He uses the law to, along with this Levitical tithe principle as his strongest point to back up the fact that he and, the, and Barnabas had the right to the same kind of re remuneration in ministry. So what I see here is the continuation of the, th of the tithe principle from the law into the New Testament, not that anyone's salvation is based upon it, but that it's a scriptural precedent to follow especially in connection with the financial responsibility of believers in Jesus towards their preachers and teachers of God's word. And here's why. You've heard me use this word tithe over and over again. And I thought, what in the world is he talking about there? This is the word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it literally means a tenth. That's what it means. Tithe is the Greek word for tenth. If we hit the pause button on the argument of whether or not tithing is commanded in the New Testament, take a step back and look at God's word as a whole, we'll see something very interesting. The first time tithing is actually mentioned in the Bible is when Abraham tithes a tenth of his spoils of war to the priest named Melchizedek. Yes, this was a one-time event, and we only have recorded for us Abraham doing this one time. But if you think about it, this is too seemingly random of an event for Moses to have recorded it for no reason. Why Moses recorded this event all the way back in Genesis was to set up a precedent that Jacob then followed in tithing back 10% of all that God had given him. 
to which God would then incorporate into his law. What we see, therefore, is that tithing actually preceded the law and was thus not derived from the law. It was incorporated in the law, but it did not originate from the law. This is quite telling, for the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament sees the importance of this experience between Abraham and Melchizedek. In comparing the Levitical tithe and the tithe to Christ, the author writes, in this case, mortal men receive tithes, the Levites. But in that case, the one fulfilling that receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he, Jesus, the priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, lives on. While referring to the preeminence of Christ as symbolized and perhaps, perhaps personified by, by Melchizedek, the author notes that Christ is the one who should ultimately get the tithe as the fulfillment as the Son of God and our true high priest now. We come full circle to Genesis, to the New Testament book of Hebrews, still referencing the tithe, but this time in connection with Jesus. Let me ask you this. How do we give our tithes to Jesus? He doesn't expect us to put our tithes on an altar and light a match, throw it on it, and burn it up. So we give these tithes to him by giving them to his body, to the body of Christ, which is the church. So is there a point-blank verse that I can point to in the New Testament that Paul or someone else wrote that said, make sure you tithe as a New Testament believer in Jesus on a regular basis? No. But at the same time, there is no removal of it in the New Testament either. And that is quite telling as well, if you think about it. The New Testament spent a lot of time explaining how other aspects of the law no longer apply to New Testament believers in Jesus, doesn't it? Circumcision, eating unclean animals, observing special Old Testament feasts, feasts and Sabbath days. But nowhere in the New Testament is there evidence for the complete removal of the tithe principle as it applies to financially supporting the church and those who preach and teach the word of God. Rather, as we've all hopefully seen, if we take a step back and look at the Bible as a whole, there's an awful lot of evidence that points to the continuation of giving the tithe. But now, as we see in Galatians 6, 6, to Jesus by giving it to the body of Christ. In addition, while not canonical, as referenced by R.C. Sproul, there is written evidence of the primitive church in the first century A.D. continuing and observing the tithe principle. The primitive church obviously saw the continuation of tithing as it pertained to the church as simply being understood and simply continuing. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us as 21st century believers in Jesus, making up the church of God? The most detailed description of a tithe to those serving God in his house of worship, which Paul even appeals to, is found in the law. The Israelites were to give a tenth, or 10% of the best of their livestock and the best and first harvest of their crops to those who served God full-time on their behalf. While the majority of us don't have livestock, some of us do, 
But not all of us have livestock or crops, for that matter, to give back to God. Much like in the days that Paul was writing, what do we have? We do have something. What we do have, what livestock and crops meant to the Israelites was their income, what their livelihood. What we do have in these days, just like in Paul's day, in the day that he was writing, is some form of income. It can be in the form of a regular paycheck, a pension, social security, or government assistance. We all have some form of income just like those Paul is writing to. It's clear that Paul understood the tithe principle could be appealed to in financial support of those who preach to us and teach us. So in that case, translating to today's culture, 10% of the best of what we have as income would be our following of that tithe principle. 10% of the first and best of what we have as our income. If we think of the heart of the tithe principle, it was for the Israelites to give 10% of the best and first that they had. If we think about the best of what we have in income, what would that be? That would be our gross income, wouldn't it? The best of what we have. It's, it's pure, untouched. The best of what we have, before anyone gets their grubby hands on it. That's what's at the heart of the tithe principle. Giving back to God the best of what he has given to us. So in translating this to today's culture, following the tithe, laid down as law in the Old Testament, preceding the law, and carried over into the New Testament, would be giving 10% of our gross income. Why? Well, firstly, it's all God's to begin with, and that's the attitude we have to have when we tithe. The law, the, the weakness of the law, right, was that people would just do things just to check them off the list. But what's at the heart of the law of grace that we're under these days is to do it out of gratitude and love for God, gratitude and love for what he has given to us. It's all God's to begin with. We're not giving back to God what he hasn't already given to us. Similar to the Levites who served God in the temple full time, as Paul says, this is how God provides for those who preach and teach his word full time. A lot of pastors and teachers, though, you might be sitting here and this is leaving a bad taste in your mouth, because a lot of pastors and teachers these days, maybe see them on TV, have abused this New Testament carried principle and have used it as an opportunity to get rich themselves. They've corrupted this teaching and have given, the tithe, have given tithing to the church a bad reputation. So people say, because they've abused it, because they've messed it up, I'm not going to listen to it. I'm not going to follow it. There's no defending what they've done to twist and corrupt the teaching of God's word. But here's the thing. When do we not do something taught by God's word simply because others don't do it or people, other people have corrupted it? Our motivation should always be based on what God's word teaches us and not how others have corrupted it. That's it. Plain and simple. 
Every single one of us, as those being taught the word of God, either follow this instruction of financially supporting those who are teaching full-time in this way, or we don't. It's actually quite simple. We either do it or we don't do it. We'll still come up with excuses, though, won't we? Why? Why do we still come up with excuses? Because we just don't want to do it. You can lay out everything for me, explain to me from God's word why I should be doing it, and I'm still not going to do it. When everything boils down, that's what we're left with. Just don't want to do it. Is our excuse fear? It's a very real thing. Do we fear that God will not provide for our needs and pay our bills if we step out in faith with this? Do we allow that to be our driving force? Fear. Is it pure selfishness? Do we think this is my money and I can do whatever I want or don't want to do with it? We address these excuses in the next section. So we have the support. Secondly, we have the security. This is what it all comes down to in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. We've heard this verse quoted in all sorts of situations. But this was the original context of this verse. In direct connection to finances. Here's the foundational truth that we have to start with. God owns everything. I don't own anything. God owns everything. God has, in his grace, given me certain things to steward well and to handle well. He told the Israelites that in reality, he owned the promised land. And therefore, he had a right to tell them what to do with that land and the resources they gained from that land. As believers in Jesus, we know that God owns our very lives. Right? We are bought with a price. God owns our very lives. And therefore, everything we have, God really owns. We are not to think that anything we have is ours in any way. It's all God's. He chooses to bless us in different ways. And if the blessing is coming from him, he has the right to tell us what to do with it. He expects us to steward those blessings in a way that is pleasing to him. God may move in us to go above and beyond our regular tithe to those who minister to us, to give offerings to other causes, to, to separate missionaries and to the poor. For example, God also instructs us to help out those who need financial assistance. That's sharing his love with those in need in a very real way. If we see the resources God has entrusted to us as his, then we understand that he will supply everything we need in order to give back to him his tithe, to go above and beyond to those who need it, and be able to meet all of our personal financial obligations. Don't believe me? God says so himself. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. 
Paul uses different words there, but if you take a look at that context, he's really talking about this. He's really talking about this. God is able to make all this abound to you so that you will have all sufficiency in everything. You may have an abundance for every good deed. Not for you to just hold on to it and hoard it and do with it what you want to do with it, but to give it to you to use for every good deed. God has already promised this. He's already promised us this. The problem is that we don't believe it. The problem is that we don't believe him. The problem is, that, is not that God does not make good on his promises. The problem is that we don't even see if he will. We only see things in a humanly limited view and never take the opportunity to actually exercise our faith, whether out of fear, selfishness, or something else. Here's what Paul has to say in response to that. What you sow, you will reap. What you sow, you will reap. God is not mocked. Don't deceive yourself. If we continue to only use our finances motivated out of fear, we will only reap situations where those fears can become realities. If we think, I can't give a tithe to my church, I can't give to those in need and still pay my bills, then we risk the situation where we seriously won't have enough to do any of that. God may put you in a fearsome situation like that to force you to see that the only way to honor him with your finances is to obey him in what he's already told you and have faith to, sh to know that he will come through with his promises. If we think, this is my money and I'm simply not going to obey God with how he's already instructed me to use it and I'm going to spend it on whatever I want to spend it on. And all our financial decisions are motivated by self-serving purposes, then we risk a situation where we lose all of it. What we sow, we will reap. Think of it this way. If we aren't living as though finance, the finances we have are actually God's, always have been God's and always will be God's, to be used in the way that God has already instructed us to do so, then what reason does God have for us to keep them? If we're not actually using them for the good deeds he wants us to use them for. What reason does God have to allow us to keep them? If you think about it, what we think are the safest ways of using our finances, not giving back to God what is really his to begin with, is actually the most unsafe way of using our finances, isn't it? Again, God is not mocked. We cannot deceive ourselves. In reality, our finances are safest in using them the way God has instructed us to use them. God has already promised us that. Jesus already taught in Matthew chapter 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How do you think about your earthly finances? How you think about your earthly finances, that's where your heart is. It's a good litmus test. If you look at the way that you see your finances and how you use them or how you're not using them, that shows where your heart is. That shows who you're putting your trust in. 
If your finances are completely in God's hands, giving him his tithe, sacrificially giving above and beyond that to his work, to the poor, to advancing his kingdom, and you are trusting him with those things, that shows where your heart and faith really is, doesn't it? In a very real, practical way. If your finances are seen through fear's eyes or selfishness's eyes, that shows where your heart and your faith really is. That's the heart motivation God wants us to have. Again, we live under grace. The same heart motivation that the poor woman who gave the two coins back to God even when she had nothing because she knew that God would still take care of her is what we need to look at too and what we need to hold dear as well. She literally put her full faith and trust in God instead of any in herself. She said, I know that all I have are these two coins, but I know that God wants me to give them to him, so I'm going to do it. I know I literally have nothing else. I don't know how I'm going to pay the rent. I don't know how I'm going to buy food, but I'm still going to give these two coins back to God because that's what he wants me to do. And she did it anyway. And Jesus said, turned to his disciples, and he said, you see her? She gave more than anybody else has here. And because of that, we know that God took care of her needs. We know that God blessed her. That's what Paul is getting at when he says this in verse 6. I mean, verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Again, that's not just some pie-in-the-sky, out-there, esoteric phrase. That's referring to what Paul has just been talking about. If you sow to yourself and your fears and your selfishness, that's all you're going to reap. But if you sow to what the Spirit wants you to do and how God wants you to use your finances, then you are investing in eternal life. want to be careful there. Not your eternal life. You're not earning your way to heaven. You're making an investment in the work that will bring other souls into eternal life. If we sow to please God and to advance his kingdom, we will reap an eternal harvest of souls. What kind of investment are we making with our finances? Are we making investments to only benefit ourselves? Or are we making investments to bring more souls into God's kingdom? One that will be destroyed, where moth, rust will destroy it and a thief will come in and steal it? Or something that will last forever? Are we only sowing our finances for selfishness and fear? Or are we sowing them to win more souls for God's kingdom? Just as freely as he has given us every spiritual blessing, so are we to be free with how he wants us to use our finances because, again, they're all his to begin with. If we honor God with our finances, then he promises to honor us. Even though this is an Old Testament reference, since the principle still carries over to the New Testament, and therefore today, the principle behind this reference carries over to today. Matthew 3.10, uh, Malachi 3.10, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. Do it and see 
if I won't open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Try it and see what happens. Test me now in this. You know I don't believe the Bible teaches a prosperity gospel. But we also cannot ignore the very plain connection between obeying God with the way we use our finances and God blessing and honoring us because of that trust in him and because of that investment we're making into eternity. Are you trusting yourself or the world with the outcome of your finances? Or are you trusting God and his power and his blessing with your finances? We all want to handle our finances wisely. But a lot of us don't know where to begin. We think, I've tried, tried this, tried this, tried this. I can't seem to get a handle on my finances. A lot of us don't know where to begin to get things under control. Let me encourage you with this. If you start with setting aside your tithe and determining with God what he wants you to give to the needy and other causes for his kingdom, God will help you get the rest of it under control. Start with honoring God first. And he will see to it that everything else comes into order. Believe it or not, he promises to make sure that you will have enough to meet your needs. And thanking the Philippian church for their sacrificial financial gift to him to continue God's work, Paul writes to them in Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Let us together let go of our fear, let go of our selfishness, and use our finances the way that God has already told us how he wants us to use them. Let us together give God complete control over them as we obey him with them. As hard as it is to not let fear or selfishness control what we do or not do with our finances, God's promises are infinitely more powerful than anything we or the world can do. Let us be known as a giving people who know that what we have is not actually ours. So we have no right to determine what we should do with it. It's God's. Let us obey him by giving our tithe back to him in gratitude for what he's teaching us through his word. And let us obey him by giving above and beyond that to the needy in our community and the world to build his kingdom. Let us be known as people who others can look at if they, if they could look at our checkbook, our finances. They just look at it. They can look at it, look at us, and say, I know where their heart is. I know where their heart is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage in Scripture. As uncomfortable as it perhaps was to talk about, it's in your word. It's your truth. It's something we need to be reminded of. I pray that if any of us has really been struggling, we're letting go in doing with their finances what your word explains to us what to do with them, that you would finally give them the power to make that commitment today, to let go of that fear, to let go of the, uh, the, the fear of the unknown, the what-ifs. What if I can't pay this bill or that bill? 
just let go and give everything over to your control. Lord, I pray that, you would, that your power would go forth and change hearts and change lives, that we may all together go the way that you want us to go, live the way you want us to live, and use the things that you've given us to glorify you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we transition.